Welcome, everybody, to Crystal Kylan Friends. Today, we're going to be talking to David Wallace-Wells. Yep, New York Times opinion writer, uh, also contributor for New York Times Magazine. He writes a newsletter over there. Um, he's author of a book called The Uninhabitable Earth or Planet. I think The Uninhabitable Earth. But um, very, very knowledgeable on where we are in the climate crisis. I think very reasoned. He's not going out of his way to be apocalyptic, although the news can be rather apocalyptic. So he's going to break down for us where we are, what the geopolitical ramifications are, and what the political outlook is. Uh, first of all, let me just say, I would not have led with New York Times opinion writer, because knowing me and our audience, they would have been like, Ugh, why are you talking <laughs> to a New York Times opinion writer? But he's not hes not your typical New York Times D-bag. He's, uh, he's a good dude, and he focused, again, it's all, it's all climate-related, and he's done some fantastic work on it. He had the most read piece. Yeah, so he wrote a, a piece, and that was actually the genesis of his book, which is called The Uninhabitable Earth, um, where he just lay down, okay, one degree of warming, here's what it looks like. One and a half degrees of warming, here's what it looks like. Two degrees of warming, here's what it looks like. And a lengthy piece for um, uh, New York Magazine, and it was their most read story of all time. Uh, which, you know, in a way is encouraging because it shows you there is a huge concern, appetite among the public. They want more content. They want to understand what's going on. They're interested in solutions. Unfortunately, we have a uh, terrible political system that never allows any of those solutions to be ultimately implemented. Yes. Now, speaking of a terrible political system, mm -hmm. um, obviously, as everybody knows, there's been a number of massacres that happened lately, you know, the terror attack in Buffalo, and then you have what happened in the school in Uvalde, Texas. And, um, you know, the, the conversation is what it normally is after these, which is you have... Uh, people on the Democratic side, like, hey, maybe we should tighten up these gun laws a little bit and make some changes so that fewer people die. And then you have uh, people on the right who are like, squirrel. And uh, we have plenty of examples of that to share with everybody. So let's go ahead and run that first video and we'll react to it. These are uh, Republicans in Congress giving speeches while debating the issue of gun reform. Take a look. The Republicans have also said, let's harden the schools. Look, you've got $122 billion that you gave in relief, COVID relief to K-12. More than 90% of it remains unused. And you say, well, that we don't want to talk about doors. What do we do? We hide behind doors because they work. You can harden schools and make them work. You can arm guards and make them work and make children safer. So they're really leaning into the door thing. <laughs> they're really leaning into the door control. They really thought the first person who uttered that, I think it was Ted Cruz, they were like, yes, that's it. Let's go with that one. That's a great deflection. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, and God, there's so much to say about this. I mean, Ted Cruz was all in and Trump echoed it at the NRA convention about like, we should have just one door. Of course, that's like a fire safety hazard, not to mention. The shooting can originate from in the class. Yes. And here's, <laughs> here's the thing that I want people to understand, and there's been some good, um, you know, reporting about this post-Uvalde. These schools have already been hardened. It's a bit of a misnomer when we say, like, we've done nothing post-Columbine. That's actually not true. What we have is created a whole multi-billion dollar industry dedicated to hardening schools. And Uvalde was uh, cutting edge in terms of their security system, the locking doors. They had recently expanded their school police department so that they had multiple officers across different locations, the good guys with guns that we're also going to hear more about in a minute. They had social media monitoring 
monitoring software. They had a program to make sure that you were like running the IDs and double checking that these were all people who were supposed to. Ultimately, none of this is ultimately a protection against a society that is violent where any uh, insane 18 year old with, you know, a credit card can go out and buy an AR-15. We can't even, I just covered a story the other day. We don't even have AC in all of our schools. And they're talking about like hardening the doors or whatever. Like we we can't even get the proper textbooks, updated textbooks in a lot of school buildings across school the country. Districts. They're dilapidated, they're falling right. down. And now they think this is some sort of a cure-all. By the way, the logic of it doesn't even make sense. Like you said, number one, a fire hazard. Number two, the shooting can originate from inside the class. Number three, you know, if anything, I think it'd be a better idea. If we're going to talk about doors, which we shouldn't be doing in the first place, but there, it'd probably be a better idea to have a door in every classroom. Right. So that, you know, if something happens, bolt, go, go get out of there. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And here's the thing. Like, I'm not against talking about what we can do because the reality is the adults have already failed. We already know that nothing's going to happen in Congress. I'm not against all together. The, having house, the, the house did pass something though. It's in the Senate. It's going to die. Yes, correct. Okay. Um, I'm not against all together having a conversation about, okay, what could we do that would be, you know, in the best interest of making schools safer. But this is obviously a deflection and a distraction from, you know, some of the the steps that we know would have some impact. Would it be, you know, magically transform the country overnight? No. But, you know, they, they've had some of their uh, standard talking points kind of taken off the table with this tragedy because the whole good guys with guns yeah, thing it, that they, they normally go to. It's like they were there. They were literally standing outside the fucking classroom and they didn't do anything because they're a bunch of cowards. So what now? Like, yeah, More it, guns is not going to be the answer. So they have to go to door control. And even the school resource officer thing. Look what happened in Parkland. Right. Homeboy hid as soon as it happened. Okay, so the well, idea that this is, you know. They had a school resource officer who, you know, the initial story was, oh, he was there, he's pursuing the killer on the scene and they exchanged fire. And then it was like, well, they didn't exchange fire, but he was totally there and chased him into the school. And then it was like, well, actually, he wasn't really there at all. So, all this, right. I mean, this school was as prepared as it possibly could be. They'd recently had drills. Um, I know you watched the uh, really hard to watch uh, video of the teacher who, Mr. Reyes, I covered who was there, whose every single kid in his classroom was murdered. He did everything he was supposed to do that he'd been trained yeah, hide to hide under do. the desk is what they tell the kids. So that'll work. Yeah. Uh, so look, bottom line is there is no substitute for reducing the amount of violence in our society, making it harder for the bad guys with guns to ultimately get guns. All right. So now let me show you another one. These keep getting wilder and wilder. Take a look. Look. Maybe if we heard more prayers from leaders of this country instead of taking God's name in vain, uh, we wouldn't have the mass killings like we didn't have before prayer was eliminated from school. That may be the dumbest person in the country. Because <laughs> he seems to earnestly believe yeah, that's the thing. that he, prayer would make a difference. He's a true believer, that one. He is a true believer. I this mean, isn't just to distract. Like, I actually think he thinks that. We live in a country that's over 70% Christian. It's over 70% Christian. And a lot of these mass shootings involve Christians either perpetrating it or the victims of it. The idea that that's some sort of a shield, how can any adult human being believe that? Well, just look at our country versus the rest of the world. Like we're massive outlier in terms of violence and gun deaths, and we have a lot of Christians, a lot of prayer going on in the country. So 
that one, that theory not working out for us I just right don't, now. I can't, I can't believe that he earnestly said that. I can't believe he earnestly said that. He and again, be- I believe him. I, I think he thinks like, yeah. why didn't we think about praying? Isn't We should the- bring back praying. I think he's the one that he got COVID, remember, at the beginning of the pandemic, and he, he blamed it on wearing the mask. This is yes, Gomer. yes. Yeah. He's got a lot of classic mm-hmm. moments. He very once famously in a committee hearing said, uh, please stop casting aspersions on my asparagus. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he didn't know what he was saying, but he said that, and he was, like, serious as he was saying it. And he he, he said, reelected. He said, um, Barack Obama is going to resurrect the Ottoman Empire. <laughs> I don't, like, he's, this guy is absolutely, one time, he was a judge, too. One time, they very famously, like, duct-taped one of the uh, people to the chair because they were acting up or whatever. Oh, he's got... When he was a judge? When he was a judge, correct. He's got... I mean, I've done... I did compilations back in the day of splicing back-to-back all the absolutely insane things he's ever said. And this guy's a peach, man. He's a gem. He's out of his goddamn mind. Mm -hmm. And um, I I don't deny that he would would think, if why don't we just pass a bill that allows prayer in school, which, by the way, is totally unconstitutional, but that's a separate conversation. He doesn't understand the Constitution anyway. But, like, if we pass that law, all of a sudden, poof. Magically, no more mass shootings. Look go. what happened. Thirty-nine thousand gun deaths a year. Now it's zero. Why? Because we prayed to Yahweh, well, and it is, all worked out. You've covered a lot of this too, of like this instinct on the evangelical right to basically any sort of tragedy. It's because of our moral failings, right? So the implication here is that the kids and the families in Uvalde were not it's fucking were sinner not kids praying hard enough. Sinner kids. Um, and I'm the reality is, I mean, I think this is a very actually religious community, so. That one's not yeah, I, not holding up to scrutiny. The other, like, this is the other. Th- I don't want to go off on standard, like, you know, Mister Atheist rants or anything. But there's over four thousand religions, all these different gods, and this numbnuts is like, no, I happen to be raised in the exact right one that is actually real. All the other three thousand nine hundred ninety nine religions, like, they're idiots, they're dumb, they're wrong. But my mommy and daddy told me the truth. And so when I pray to my God, well, then obviously that God is listening. It's right. just, it's beyond stupid. Anyway, now let's go to the last one. Take a look at this, guys. We know that a gun is a tool and it's a weapon that can be used to defend yourself or defend others. And we're all lucky enough to have that privilege. But our school children aren't. If we really want to be serious about protecting our kids here in America, we'll repeal the Gun-Free School Zones Act, and we will put into action real legislation that protects children everywhere, all over America in school, with good guys with guns, the same way we're being protected. So is she, like, literally saying arm the kids now? She said both, yes. So she starts out by saying repeal the gun-free school zone thing, and then also, you know, hey— if she says at the beginning, she implies that, like, yeah, if you want to be armed at school, you should be able to be armed at school. And then at the end, she says, we need good guys with guns. So it seems like she's saying both arm the kids, but then also um, have, like, you know, good guys with guns, which, which just means again, officers there. Yeah, which they had. How'd and, that work out? Yeah, I mean— it's amazing because it's not the facts of the case just don't get in the way of their narrative at all. The fact that the police were there waiting for a hundred, uh, one hour and 17 minutes is what they waited for. They were getting calls from inside. The kids were calling 911 saying, little Bobby's next to me bleeding out. Please come help. And they didn't go do anything. 
they need the border patrol needed to bust in and they waited an hour and 17 minutes. I mean, I think the cops were kind of holding them back a little bit, but they were, you know, created a perimeter and held back the parents and tased some and handcuffed some. And that uh, brave mom spoke out and said yeah, that they were like threatening her and whatnot. Yeah. So threatening her to hold her like in contempt or obstruction of justice or some insanity because she was speaking to the media about their failures. So this whole, you know, good guys with guns narrative. I mean, Look, I'm not in favor of abolishing the police. Neither is Crystal. I think that's a goofy ass idea. But let's keep it real. There's that argument in the context of this story is beyond dumb. I mean, look, the only way let's just give everybody the straight dope here. The only way that you're really going to eliminate or nearly eliminate mass shootings or gun deaths is to ban guns, is to effectively confiscate the ones that are already out there, which is over 300 million and ban them. Now, I don't believe in that. I, I, you know, we do have the Second Amendment. It's not it, the way that the right interprets it is nonsense. They have a, a ridiculous view of it. Um, but I'm not in favor of gun confiscation. But that doesn't mean you just throw your hands up and say, well, what are we going to do? We're doomed to 39,000 people dying every year uh, from gun violence. No, you can do some very basic things that would reduce the number of gun deaths. You know, when you talk about the red flag laws, I mean, the New York Times did a piece this uh, past week where. They went through like a lot of the high profile mass shootings and they said, here are the gun laws that would have stopped these mm. mass shootings. And they had a list. I think 35 of them could have been stopped. Yeah. You know, there's a whole it, they work to an extent. Are you only going to get that number to zero or close to zero if you ban guns and confiscate the ones in circulation? But again, you can reduce it by. Uh, the, what's the bill that the House just passed? Raising the age to buy an assault rifle to 21. I implement a red flag law. Implement a universal background check law with no exceptions whatsoever. Ban high-capacity magazines. These things, you know, I would have a whole permitting and, and testing system and training system where in order to get the gun, you have to go through all that stuff. Yeah. So That was what Bill Burr proposed. And he's right. He's right. Idea. Treat it like a pilot's mm -hmm. license, he said. So, yeah. you know, and hey, if you graduate all the way to the top thing, by all means, have at it. But, you know, the idea that just any random schmuck, I mean, this kid was holding up a dead bag of cats on video. Right. Like, you think a red flag there? That is literally the first thing they talk about when discussing sociopaths and serial killers. Almost all of them in their childhood kill animals. Animal cruelty. Yeah, animal cruelty. So he's holding up a bag of dead cats. He, he apparently said behind the scenes to a bunch of people, like, I'm going to commit a mass shooting. It, he's threatening people online to like rape and murder them. His, his acquaintances called him mass shooter. You know, police having to show up at big fights between him and his mom. Every acquaintance was like, that guy's going to be a mass shooter. We call him mass shooter. Yeah. And so you're telling me, and I literally heard uh, a bunch of Republicans argue this too, even given that set of facts, no, it would be unconstitutional for there to be a process and then they take the guns away from him. Are you fucking psycho? They, what is the matter with you? They And they did pass something like that in Florida um, after Parkland. Uh, and obviously Florida now at this point, basically a red state. And so they pass these red flag laws. There are other states that have them. So this is not, you know, unconstitutional, even under the extreme interpretation of uh, the current sort of right wing lean of the courts. And yeah, at least it gives you a chance, right? As you said, are you going to be able to prevent all of these? No. And in fact, I think disrupting these mass shooters is probably one of the most difficult things because oftentimes, you know, this is someone who doesn't have a direct criminal history, um, hasn't committed a felony, you know, and uh, is acting alone. And so those can be some of the most difficult and maybe really dedicated to the cause. So they're willing to break laws in order to get their weapon or whatever. But, you know, in this instance, I keep this bringing guy up, wasn't uh, I keep bringing up the fact that he waited till he was 18 
to buy his gun. That's right. He waited till he was legally able to do it to buy his gun. And then, you know, there are some things that are so basic, it's insane that it's not already law, like safe gun storage. Okay? Right. Now, is that going to disrupt a mass shooting event? No, probably not. Fewer accidental deaths. You know what? You have a, a huge number of accidental deaths. You also have, you know, huge numbers of suicides right. in this country, mm-hmm. um, the amount of domestic violence. So if you can just have a little bit of a lag time between when you have the suicidal thought or the murderous thought and when you can actually get the gun, that would save a lot of lives. And so the fact that it wouldn't fix every problem is not an excuse ultimately for inaction. And um, you know, they're very skilled at basically waiting out the clock, waiting for the um, the frenzy to to die down over the the visceral raw emotions around this particular event and move on to to something else. Democrats are unwilling to use, you know, some more aggressive governing techniques to actually get things through. And so even things that are overwhelmingly supported by Democrats, independents, and Republicans ultimately, Nothing happens, nothing changes, nothing gets through. And we were talking about this, Kyle. Um, You know, I have my ideas about what would be good and what I think would be beneficial and what kind of, you know, balances that desire for freedom and liberty and also uh, existing in a society and trying to keep people safe. But I would be happy to literally have anything pass just to prove that we are still a country capable of acting at all in response to clear societal problems and mass tragedies. Yeah, and obviously people are with you on that because, again, every single gun reform short of confiscation is has colossal support. Yeah. It's astounding. Even now the assault weapons ban, there have been times when the assault weapons ban was hovering around 50%. Yeah. Sometimes it was even under it. Yeah. Now that's at 63%. Yep. Every single thing short of confiscation, people support it. So, you know, if you go up to your average person and you say, what if I told you we can cut gun deaths in this country in half with some reasonable gun measures that do not violate the Second Amendment? What do you think people would say? Of course. People would absolutely. Yeah. I yeah. mean, and uh, responsible gun owners think are not, you know, big fans of people who have no experience, no training. Uh, by the way. And who are crazy people just going out and um, buying whatever gun they want to buy. It's not a, a situation that a lot of responsible gun owners are enthusiastic about. We are gun owners. So people can't turn to us and say, oh, you know, lefties want to confiscate guns. I just told you I don't want to confiscate guns. I have a gun. So this isn't coming from that place. It's coming from a place of let's not be total psychos. Because look, if they were being honest about their position and they took it to its logical conclusion, then you would have a couple maniacs out there saying, I think you should have the right to like a tactical nuclear weapon. And I think the ban on fully automatic weapons, mm-hmm. which is currently in place, is unconstitutional. Yep. If you really believe that no limits yes. make sense, then that should be your position. But only what, 0.2% of the population would agree with that because everybody draws a line. It's just where, where is that line? Right. Where is that line? Right. So it, it is to your point, And I'm not saying it's not a hard conversation because you do have to try to balance freedom and liberty versus safety and security. And we do that with every political issue effectively. Yes. And, you know, when you look at us versus the rest of the world, the numbers, when it comes to gun deaths, we're just such a colossal outlier with 39,000 gun deaths a year that to look at that and say, let's do nothing is, I mean, that's, preposterous. It's just so silly. Yeah, I agree. Anyway. All right. All right. Um, 
definitely want to get to our guest. Um, very uh, well-read, well-researched, well-spoken, very knowledgeable about the climate crisis, where we are, what we can do, what the political landscape and political um, hurdles are standing in our way. Uh, as I mentioned before, he's author of a book called The Uninhabitable Earth, uh, and he also uh, writes for The New York Times, publishes a climate newsletter there that is uh, really useful as well. So let's get right to David Wallace-Wells. David, welcome. Great to have you. Good to be here. Really excited to talk to you both. Absolutely. So um, I wanted to start with something that uh, was in the news this week. I didn't get it, see it get a whole lot of attention. Obviously, there are many things going on in our world and in our country. But um, the amount of planet warming carbon dioxide, this is per, per your outlet, the New York Times, in the atmosphere broke a record in May, continuing its relentless cl climb. There is more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere now than at any time in at least 4 million years. That's according to officials at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric administration. Can you just help us make sense of that and what that means? Well, the first thing is that it's not news. We're on this track. It's going up every year. Um, it's going to keep going up so long as we're producing emissions at all. Um, it can go a little bit higher or a little bit slower, depending on how many emissions we're producing. But basically, this is not a surprise. Nevertheless, it's a striking data point that we're now at 420 parts per million of carbon in the atmosphere. And since that's a number that probably sounds a bit abstract to people who aren't as quite as deep in the science as I am, um, before the Industrial Revolution, the planet's climate was at about 280. And it hadn't really breached 300 in many millions of years. So since the Industrial Revolution, we've added about half again as much carbon as was ever there before. Um, and almost all of that has been done um, over the last few decades, you know, half of the damage that we've done through the production of carbon into the atmosphere um, has been done in the last 25 years, and 25% of that damage has been done just in the last 12 or 13 years. Um, so we're adding more carbon every year than we've ever added before. That's what it means to be at peak emissions, which we still are. Um, although people often talk about the good news on climate and bending the trajectory downward when it comes to how much carbon we're putting into the atmosphere, we're still doing worse this year than we've ever done before. And that's been true of basically every single year uh, since the Industrial Revolution. So we're still very much heading in the wrong direction. And it also means that we're heading into some relatively scary, if not extremely scary, temperature scenarios. Um, at the last time that the, there was this much carbon in the atmosphere, the planet wasn't 1.2 degrees Celsius warmer as it is today. It was about three or four degrees Celsius warmer. Um, there were thick forests in the Arctic and sea levels were not you know, a few centimeters, but many meters higher than they are today. Now, the people who study paleoclimate, which is the term for the long history of the planet, say that the conditions of the planet are different enough now that we can't take that last experience with this level of carbon as a perfect guide to where we're headed. But it does tell us, tell us that we're heading into a, a new future, really a new world, in which climate conditions are going to be dramatically different than anything that humans have ever known before, because all of these histories that we're talking about, you know, the planet's never been warmer than it is today um, when there were humans around to observe it. And that's why we're seeing the extremes that we're seeing in South Asia and the, you know, the Pacific heat dome and the, in the American Northwest and um, record storms and droughts and rainfalls and all the rest of it. It's because we have more carbon in the atmosphere. And what that carbon does is um, make the planet warmer. And as long as we continue doing that, which um, we are every year, the problem is just gonna get worse. So a couple things. First of all, I remember one of the old school 
climate science uh, denial talking points was that, uh, yeah, we may have a lot of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, but back during the medieval times, they actually had more. That was one of the arguments that they would make. So uh, first of all, respond to that. Is that true? I assume it's not, but still you can uh, go off on that. And the other thing is, I remember uh, about a decade ago, people used to talk about 400 parts per million as the tipping point, as like the point of no return. And now we're well beyond 400 parts per million. And I don't really hear anybody saying anything anymore about like that being the point of no return. Now it's just like uh, almost people somewhat resigned to the nature of reality as it is right now, which is pretty grim. Yeah, on the first point, um, I'm guessing that the climate skeptics or deniers that you're referring to are really talking about temperature levels, not carbon, because carbon has not been this high in a very, very, very long time. Mm -hmm. But there were there have been some brief um, temperature spikes throughout human history. Um, and so up until a few years ago, it was not possible to say that the planet is warmer now than it has ever been in all of human history. But it is now possible to say that because the, war the planet is now a little bit warmer than it used to be. And so it's past all those um, peaks um, that we've lived through in the past. And we're heading towards much more warming today. I think probably even in a quite optimistic scenario, something like a half a degree or maybe three quarters of a degree more of warming from where we are today. That's a, that's a sort of a best case scenario. So we're going to get a lot more than we have right now. Um, in terms of safe thresholds, yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, um, I remember when Bill McKibben, the pioneering um, climate writer and activist, was founding his climate advocacy group. Um, I think he was originally going to call it 400. Um, uh, sorry, wait, what is that? It's a uh, 420. 400, uh, sorry. No, it's 400. Yeah. Um, sorry. Um, he was originally going to call it um, 400.org. Um, but then he talked to some scientists who were like, actually, the safe level is 350. You should call it 350.org. And that's how it got its name. Um, we're now, yeah, we're at 421. That'll probably dip a little bit over the course of the year. There's fluctuations every year or so. Um, but next year at about this time, we're going to see a new record, probably two or three parts per million higher. And that's almost certain to continue for at least the next few years because um, everybody who studies the energy industry and global climate models say that we probably haven't peaked yet. We might be near a peak for global emissions, but we haven't yet peaked. Um, and that is very scary. Um, in general, uh, on all of the climate impacts that you can think of, um, we really don't want to be careening into the unknown, the unprecedented. We are already to some degree there, um, but the farther we get into that world, the scarier it's going to get. Now that we are in that world, there's a lot more effort, both at the policy level and at the sort of psychological level, um, I think, as you suggest, to sort out what it means to be living in that new future and not just to worry about what we can't let happen, which is the position we were in, say, a decade or two ago, but also how we can figure out how to live under the new conditions that we've already made inevitable. And I think that's one reason why you hear a lot less talk about um, carbon concentrations as a as a you know, a threshold of stability and survivability, because we've already passed the levels that scientists have told us um, mark those danger zones. And you hear more these days and over the last five years, especially about this temperature level 1.5 degrees, um, which scientists have described as the sort of highest safe level of warming. It's, it's not totally safe. There is some danger. There's already some disruption today at 1.2. Um, but the goal of the Paris Accord was to keep us to 1.5. And the kind of global climate activist awakening that we've seen over the last few years has really taken its um, its energy from that goal to, to not just stay below two degrees, but to, to keep temperature levels um, as close to 1.5 as possible. Now, personally, I think that that's basically impossible. Um, we could talk about exactly why that might be, but um, 
in general, I find the 1.5 degree um, a little misleading because I think there's hardly any chance at all that we stay below it. And in fact, in the, in the latest UN report, um, this is a consensus report. It's not you know one outlier scientist um, spouting some crazy view. It's really the view of the world scientists. Even in those emission scenarios that were literally designed to allow us to stay below 1.5 degrees, they found um, that we would be passing that threshold at least temporarily. They think there's some chance that we could come back down after we go up. This is called overshoot. Um, but um, the short, you know, the short version of that analysis is like even the pathways that we've told ourselves would allow us to hit that goal, we're now realizing are not going to allow us to hit that goal. And that means I think functionally that threshold too is a little bit out of date. And I think the response to that that we should have collectively is to take seriously the idea that every threshold of warming, every tenth of a degree, even every hundredth of a degree can really matter. And the more that we limit it, the more successful and happier and stable we'll be. Not to say that there's another target that we have to hit. And if we don't hit it, then we're screwed because unfortunately, I mean, it, it's not the way that science works, but it also means that we're likely to pass that um, you know, fail that test as well as we've failed all the other ones that we've set for ourselves. And so what do you think that a realistic best case scenario is? And um, what are the implications of that new best case scenario for uh, the planet and also for our geopolitics? Well, I would say um, two degrees is a reasonable optimistic case. I would say it's not quite a best case. Um, there are some models that suggest if we do absolutely everything we can right now, we could get to about 1.8 or so. But I think that the obstacles to that kind of fast action are, are um, significant enough that while I, I want to acknowledge that it's possible and say that it's important to try to keep temperature levels as low as we can, I think two degrees is, is a sort of a, a good framing level. Um, this is what will happen if we move very quickly, but not with absolute maximum speed. Um, and what that would mean is, um, you know, the UN actually did a whole big special report on this exact subject that came out in 2018 about the difference between 1.5 degrees and two degrees. And in fact, that report was has really fueled a lot of the climate awakening that we've observed over the last few years, because it was so clear about the stark difference between those two temperature levels. So at two degrees, um, we can expect something like 150 million additional deaths from air pollution from the burning of fossil fuels, 150 million. Um, we can expect that um, flooding events and storms that used to hit once a century would hit every single year. We could expect that um, heat in South Asia and the Middle East in particular um, could get so hot during summer that you know you couldn't work outside. You might not even be able to go outside really without risking heat stroke or death on some days um, of the year. And these are places that you know some of these cities have 10 or 12, 15 million people in them, which is one reason why the UN at least believes that at about two degrees, um, we could see climate migration numbering in the hundreds of millions, um, if not more. And you know these are all climate projections. They are um, very solid scientifically. I think to some degree they underestimate the human response and what it will mean for the way that we live. I think we can, you know, adjust the way that we live. And I think actually the, the heat wave that's been pummeling South Asia um, for the last few months, it's been really three months now, um, is in some ways an encouraging sign because the death toll has been relatively low there. It's a reminder that, you know, we can live differently in order to live more safely under different climate conditions, but it does require things like not leaving your house between, you know, during daylight hours for a period in this case of um, weeks or months. So it's not like um, when we say we can adapt or exhibit resilience, it means that everything's going to be okay. It just means that all will be transformed. 
And I think that that's true um, often at the individual level um, with lives, especially along the equator where the impacts are most intense. And as you suggest, it goes all the way up to the geopolitical level where we'll have a real um, reshuffling of global power um, in part because of climate. And I think in part also because of the energy transition that um, climate will bring about. We're seeing a little bit of that today um, with the energy transition news around the war in Ukraine where you know, Russia is a country that um, draws a lot of its wealth and power from fossil fuels and particularly the fossil fuels that it provides to Europe. And um, it probably saw that that power was going to diminish over the next decade or so as Europe sort of definitively decarbonized its energy sector. And so it understood that its power and leverage over um, that continent was at an all time high right about now. And mm -hmm. I think that's one reason, not at all the only reason, but one reason why um, Putin felt emboldened to go into Ukraine. And then the way that that war has been fought, you know, we've read a lot about the, um, the military dynamics, um, the intelligence dynamics, the, you know, the way that Ukraine's allies have helped it in its fight and and um, the diplomatic um, theater of it in which the world has been rallied to the, the cause of Ukraine. It's also been fought on a very um, cold-hearted, hard-nosed, energy realist um, front. And that is to say that Europe and Russia are basically um, you know, threatening to, and then to some degree, cutting the other one off from their own markets. So Russia first was cutting its natural gas supplies off to some of the smaller European countries. Um, Europe eventually responded by uh, imposing an oil embargo on Russia, which means it won't be importing any Russian oil. And it looks likely that Russia is going to cut off um, all natural gas to Russia uh, to Europe this year in response. We'll see whether that happens or not, but I would, I would guess it's likely, which is going to leave the entire European continent in a major economic lurch. Now, in a future 10 or 15 or 20 years from now, when um, not maybe not the whole world, but rich countries like those in Europe had decarbonized and moved to renewable energy, um, none of these dynamics would be relevant. Um, renewable power is domestic. You don't have to import it. In fact, it's the case that many of the world's poorest countries are much richer in renewable resources than they are in fossil resources. And so there's a sort of a slight rebalancing of global power dynamics there as well. Um, but in the big picture, um, we have lived for at least since the 1970s and to some degree since the 19th century, um, according to the geopolitics of fossil fuels. And the geopolitics of um, renewable energy is going to be very different. It'll have a lot more to do with mining, um, rare earth metals and copper and that sort of thing than it will um, where your oil wells are and where your energy security is coming from. Um, and I think we're just starting to sort of sort out that new, you know, that um, that new board game, um, you know, that uh, that new map of, of global power. Um, and the war in the Ukraine is is one of the things that is really showing us the way. Yeah, it's um, you actually reminded me of do you remember when there was the coup attempt in Bolivia? And then this, uh, Elon Musk on Twitter was responding to somebody who was like, you know, this is a coup. And he's like, well, we sort of should be able to coup them. And then come to find out, of mm. course, they have a, a tremendous reserve of lithium that comes from there. And that's the stuff that goes into the batteries for the electric cars. Exactly. And so to your point, yeah, global politics, I think if anything, people underestimate just how much, you know, oil and gas and fossil fuels really dictates global politics. And there's going to be, we're already seeing the changes with Russia and Europe, but like there's going to be all sorts of issues and a giant worldwide upheaval of the, the current order of things when, you know, the West sort of 
uh, totally divorces from Saudi Arabia and the Middle East when it comes to oil. So there's a whole lot of political implications on top of just the climate and economic uh, implications. But I have to ask you a very bro sciencey question right now because it's something that I've thought about about a million times. Um, anecdotally, I love the outdoors. I'm outside all the time. Anecdotally, something I've noticed, particularly in the Northeast, is that um, the seasons seem to be getting pushed like later and later and later. So when I was a kid, I remember it starting to get cold sort of like in September and then it would get warm again in like March. And then now it feels like it stays warm until like all the way until December and it heats up like eight, late April, maybe May. Is that something that the, the data actually backs up or is that just massive bro science? No, that's happening indisputably. I think that there's also a lot of like noise in the data. And one of the things that's happening is also we, in we interpret based on the narratives that we have at hand. So, you know, it would have been the case, it could have been the case 20 years ago that there would be an unusually hot day in November. But 20 years ago, you wouldn't have said, oh my God, this is global warming. And now, even if we're just seeing the same sort of data anomaly, we're attributing it to global warming, which I think is having sort of adding to the cultural impact. But even putting aside our psychological interpretations, yes, the planet's getting warmer. That means every season's getting warmer. This, you know, the warm seasons are getting longer. I think of it most dramatically in terms of the California fire season, um, mm. which you know used used to really be thought of as as the late summer through to the end of the year, so about a four month season. And now, you know, some people at Cal Fire will say, no, it's totally year round. We don't have a break. Um, there is a bit of a break in the first couple of months of the year, January, February, but we're really talking about a fire season that's now um, eight or nine months long, as opposed to um, say four months long. And that's um, that's almost entirely the creation of, of climate change and the climate conditions that have produced, you know, have turned the entire American West into a kind of a tinderbox um, ready to light whenever there's a lightning storm. I just wanted to say one other thing about the geopolitics as it relates to America. And I think, you know, um, we often think about American, I mean, we, we talk, we think about American climate stalemate in a number of different ways, you know, we, we point our fingers at the Republican Party who they deserve a lot of blame. We also think that, you know, we're kind of the good guys and like what we have to do is like get off our addiction to, you know, Russian gas and Saudi oil and stuff. I just think it's important to keep in mind, especially in the context of the question of why the U.S. is moving a little bit more slowly than Europe on decarbonization, that the U.S. is the world's biggest producer of oil. It is also the world's biggest producer of gas. True. And yeah. it is the world's world's second biggest consumer of coal. So, you know, we we talk a big game, but we are um we are you know, a massively large problem when it comes to climate change in ways that I think most, even liberal Americans are, are sort of reluctant to acknowledge and admit. Well, and I do want to talk a little bit more about the political landscape because, I mean, it is sort of telling that our uh, already with the war in Ukraine, first of all, our response is like, you know, Russia is a humanitarian disaster. True. So we're going to go to those great beacons of human rights, the Saudis, and beg them to pump more oil, um, which has already turned the, you know, the intended Biden foreign policy on its head in the um, in the campaign. He said he wanted to make Saudi Arabia a pariah state. There are all sorts of these little snubs. Some of them didn't go as far as I would like him to in terms of, you know, cutting off their access to our weapons uh, and uh, supporting them in their war against Yemen. But, you know, there was definitely a shift, which which is marked from the uh, bipartisan consensus towards Saudi Arabia. That's already been tossed down. He's planning to go there. He's already sort of, you know, bent the knee to MBS to get them to pump more oil. At the same time, partly because of the Ukraine war, but partly because of a lot of other factors, you have, you know, gas prices, which are at record high levels. And, 
you know, in the the short term, a lot of the response and the focus is on, hey, that means we got to get the supply of gas up. We need more drill, baby, drill here and now. And there doesn't seem to be the same sort of political will and impetus to create that new, you know, carbon-free future where we wouldn't have to be in this position and people so dependent on, you know, the price of gas for how they're able to live their day-to-day lives to start with. So, what is your assessment of how these developments have shaped the political possibility for uh, decarbonization here in the U.S.? Well, you know, each country is different. And um, globally, I would say, I think that in the long term, um, the war is probably a good thing for decarbonization because it shows us very much the kinds of people that we're in bed with, the kinds of vulnerabilities that we have um, if we continue to depend on on fossil fuel, particularly produce the, that produced elsewhere in the world. Um, in the short term, globally, I think the picture is a bit more muddled. You see even the most climate progressive countries in the world are often at the moment, um, you know, doubling down on, on even things like coal um, rather than making massive investments in renewable build out because it's easier to build, you know, to, um, to grow that capacity very quickly. Um, the, some of the more infrastructure intensive projects are gonna take years. And by that time, who knows where we'll be with war and with, you know, with the transition in general. In the US, um, I'm not sure that I thought there was much hope for a major, um, you know, major climate package passing Congress before the war. Um, I was sort of skeptical as soon as it was split off from the COVID recovery package that we were going to see it um, pass through. And my read of Joe Manchin, which may prove to be wrong, I've heard from people who are working on this that he seems to be negotiating again in good faith, and we'll see what, what the product of that is. But doubt it. Um, my, my my own read of him is that he his his main incentive, his main objective, is to be able to say no and to be the Democrat who said no. And I think that that um, is a really hard obstacle to overcome and basically means that nothing, no investment of scale is going to be possible um, through the legislature. And um, my uh, my friend Jesse Jenkins, who's a, um, a researcher at Princeton, has put together a, a pretty comprehensive study of exactly what it means. And he compares, you know, an America with um, all of the Build Back Better climate provisions in it um, to one in which we fail to pass anything and passing failing to pass something this Congress probably means we're going to fail to pass it for at least a few years and maybe as much as a decade, given the way that the um, electoral map looks. And what that means, you know, what the difference there is that um, we go from if we had passed all of Build Back Better, Biden will have Biden would have fulfilled 91 percent of his climate, uh, 91 percent of his climate pledges. Um, and instead we get zero. So, you know, he, this wasn't a perfect bill. There are a little, some shortcomings, but um, we're basically going from, you know, we're losing 91% of, um, of climate impacts that we could possibly achieve. And there are things to do, you know, he ramped up the, the Defense Production Act stuff yesterday. Um, there are things to do on the margins, um, but personally, I think those are going to be outweighed by the bad news that's likely coming from the Supreme Court, um, which is, I would guess, going to sub- significantly limit the EPA's ability to regulate um, anything um, over the next few weeks. Um, so I think we're in a we're in a pretty bad spot. Um, when you throw the war on top of all that and voters' dissatisfaction with um, with gas prices in particular. Um, you know, it's it's not a recipe for a great progressive climate triumph. And I think that's really, really unfortunate because the bottom line is that everybody who looks at this stuff objectively says that the country will be richer 
energy prices will be cheaper. We will be, have many more jobs if we make large scale clean investments. There was a, um, a scientist friend of mine um, who studies air pollution who testified before Congress um, in 2020 saying that the entire green transition in the US could totally be paid for just through the um, public health gains of cleaner air. Wow. That is to say that the, the, the danger of air pollution is so significant that we wouldn't even have to worry or think about climate or anything else in order to justify um, a total green transition. All we would need to worry about is public health. That's how beneficial it would be. And, you know, just to think about Build Back Better, that is a bill that, as it's been examined by, you know, outside um, groups, is, is like thought to, you know, have the capacity to produce 2 million American jobs, 2 million jobs. It was being held up in the Senate by a senator. West Virginia just has 600,000 people in it total. Um, and, you know, the number of people, I don't know the exact number of people who work in coal and gas and oil in West Virginia, but I think it's in the, you know, something in like on the order of 10,000. Um, we're talking about just such a huge differential between the benefits from taking these steps and the costs of not taking them. And that's why it's especially maddening that we're not racing as quickly as we can to make these investments. It's not a matter of like the moral importance of addressing climate change. I think that is important. And I think that, his, that America has a real role to play because we have produced more historical emissions than any country in the world. And based on where we're headed, we will always have produced more than anybody else. Um, but we don't even have to worry about that. We don't have to worry about climate. We don't have to worry about you know, environmental causes. We don't have to worry about suffering in the third world, though we should. Even if you're just worrying about the well-being of the average American and the prosperity of this country 10 or 20 years down the road, these investments are no-brainers. And that's why it's so dispiriting that we're you know, at the very least in a kind of a stalemate. And depending on what you think of what's happening, what's going to happen in the Supreme Court, we may be sort of moving backwards. Well, don't get Crystal and I on our soapboxes about what led us here, because, you know, it's pretty clearly the corruption and the fact that uh, people like Joe Manchin, he takes a tremendous amount of money from the fossil fuel industry. He also happens to be directly involved with it, where he makes money every single year. I forget the specifics of it, but uh, The Intercept had an article entitled uh, Joe Manchin's Dirty Empire, where, you know, he just directly gets paid. Uh, and at the same time, he's sitting as the head of the committee that would determine what we do with climate change. So it's just, it's a colossal joke in the same respect that Kirsten Cinema is like the number one recipient of pharmaceutical money. And, you know, then she turns around and says, I don't think we should negotiate for lower drug prices. Well, gee, I wonder why. Um, I want to ask you about the wet bulb temperatures, I believe it's called, which is this notion that there's a certain mix of, of heat and humidity. There's a certain level where you know, you could just die from the heat. And um, I remember reading articles about a year ago where they talked about how this is something that's becoming uh, more and more common. And you alluded to it earlier that perhaps some places in the Middle East and elsewhere are going to be totally uninhabitable uh, by the year 2050 or 2100. Uh, talk a little bit about the wet bulb temperature. What is the actual number and, and how does that function? The number that scientists use to describe the maximum survivable wet bulb temperature is 35 degrees Celsius. Um, but what is it's that Fahrenheit? Hard to unpack. The, what is that Fahrenheit? Well, it's it's not it it's not exactly a corollary with Fahrenheit because it combines humidity and temperature. So it's the the this it's it gets tricky and hard to parse because there are these two components and they're they're combined in it. I mean, the, the literal the reason it's called wet bulb temperature it's such a weird sounding phrase is it's like if you wrap a thermometer in a wet towel and wave it around in the heat, 
this is what the thermometer shows. So it's a really weird kind of a metric and it's hard to um, break down, although you can, you can find wet bulb temperature calculators online very easily. But basically it's like, if you're at 110 degrees and you have something like 50 or 60% humidity, um, you start to get into some really dangerous territory. But what I would say is that the heat wave in India and Pakistan, which has taken place over the last couple of months, suggests that some of that science may be a little too alarmist. Um, there was a city in Pakistan called Jakabad, uh, and there they have had temperatures that were above this, or the wet bulb um, readings that were above this theoretically maximum survivable limit. This is a city of 200,000 people. And while I'm sure there have been some people dying there, it's not like 200,000 people in the city dropped dead. Um, so, and I've been having a few conversations with some scientists who are um, think that there's something sort of a little bit broken about the way that we're calculating wet bulb temperature in particular, which means that we may be a little farther from some of these real dire mass heat death scenarios than we, um, than we might have feared. And in part, that's because um, there's an inverse relationship between temperature and humidity. So the hotter it gets, it basically like boils off the water in the air. Mm. And so it, it gets quite hard to get both really hot and really humid temperatures at the same time. That being said, if the humidity is really, really high, um, then you don't need to get into some like scary, unheard of level of temperature for it to be quite dangerous. If it's 85 degrees and 90% humidity, it's going to be dangerous to a lot of especially older people or people with comorbidities. Um, and that's one of the things that we saw in the Pacific heat dome in Canada and um, the American Northwest last last summer. The, these were not crazily unheard of temperatures. I don't remember the exact peaks, but they were something like 110 degrees. And yet we've had at least, um, I think the official number is 619 deaths um, that were directly attributed by the coroner to heat. And presumably when we look at the excess mortality statistics, there'll be many, many more than that. Um, so we're not talking about, you know, waking up one day and looking at your iPhone app and seeing, oh, it's 137 today and going outside and dying. Um, depending on the, the combination of heat and humidity and also depending on the sort of infrastructure of the environment, um, you know, is this a place that was built to cool people down or to keep them warm? Um, is there air conditioning? Are there early warning systems? Is there good local communication about these risks? Um, all of these factors um, come into play. But I think as we go forward with a hotter and hotter world, we're going to see um, more and more heat mortality um, year, year after year in almost, almost everywhere you look. Um, the question of whether we're going to see, you know, in the equatorial band of the planet, conditions that are so intense that relatively young, healthy people um, are going to be dying from heat effects remains to be seen, or at least we don't know what the timeline is for that. Um, I think it seems from recent science and recent experience that it may be not quite as close as um, we once thought. And I know in your book, you talk about how uh, laborers who work outside have already experienced shortened lifespans um, and, you know, wow. issues, kidney issues because of the increased temperatures. So even if it's not like you walk outside and you drop dead, especially if you are a blue collar worker outside in the sun all day, that's going to have massive impacts on your longevity and your life um, while you are living it. Yeah. And Go ahead. And that's that's especially that's especially true in parts of the developing world. So in in India, for instance, I think half the labor force works outside. Um, so you know they're not all agricultural laborers anymore, um, although they were not all that long ago. Um, and that transition is also reducing their um, their uh, vulnerability here. But you know we think 
people like us, we think, um, you know, uh, so you don't, you can't work outside. So construction workers take a day off or whatever. But um, in large parts of the world, um, working outside is the only way to work. And those are um, those are places that which are unfortunately going to be, um, you know, with they're going to have global warming accelerating much more rapidly than in the um, in the mid latitudes where where we live. Um, and this effect, the the dynamic you're describing, is true for a huge range of um, climate impacts. You know, we sometimes when we think about apocalyptic scenarios and the and the worst case outcomes, um, we train our brains to like worry about say mass heat death, and that means that we then sort of discount or minimize um, the submortal, the sublethal impacts that are coming um, before then. I think about this most acutely with air pollution, which at the moment is estimated to kill 10 million people a year. Um, in Delhi and in India, the average life expectancy is nine years shorter than it would be without air pollution. Wow. And these are not, this is not just, this is not something that um, only kills you or then you're fine. Um, it also has an effect on um, cognitive performance. It has effect on respiratory health. It has an effect on cancers of all kinds. It has um, effect on uh, child development, um, rates of ADHD and autism. It has rates on rates of schizophrenia, uh, mental health of other kinds. Um, it's sort of all down the line. And in terms of development, but also in terms of your day-to-day -day life. It's like doctors perform surgeries less well when there's lots of pollution in the air. Um, umpires call games less effectively when there's more pollution in the air. This is stuff that has been measured time and time again. Like every aspect of human performance that you could possibly measure is damaged by air pollution. And so while the headline number is 10 million a year, and in the US, they've been estimated 350,000 people a year are dying of air pollution, um, which is as many people as died in 2020 of COVID. Um, so those headline numbers are alarming enough, but the impacts are much larger than that. Um, and to say that like, you know, to, to focus just on the deaths, I think is to, um, to sort of overlook a lot of the um, equally significant um, ways that these, you know, this carbon pollution is, is damaging our lives. Yeah. I mean, those things sometimes are harder to quantify. And so I feel like they get less of a reaction out of people. Um, you have to dig into the numbers to realize that we're already suffering massive negative impacts um, from the, you know, temperatures and the level of carbon that we have in the atmosphere and the air pollution that we have right now. Um, you know, one thing I mean, I think Go ahead. Sorry. I was just going to say, I think it's one of the sort of perverse lessons of the pandemic um, in that we've seen we're a couple of years deep now and we can see that, you know, this is a, obviously a very serious disease with huge, um, hugely threatening. Um, it's a huge threat to many people. Um, and yet, like what we're talking about is, you know, it's whatever, it's killed something less than 1% of the people who've, who've gotten it. And we're sort of starting to learn how to think at a social level about risk in that way. I think we haven't done nearly as well on the pandemic as we might have, but, you know, um, climate change is the same story. Like when we talk about scary outcomes, it doesn't mean that 100% of the people that we're talking about are going to die. But when you're talking about a story or an impact that is um, enclosing the whole planet, all 8 billion or possibly 10 or 12 billion, depending on how the century goes, people, you know, you don't need to get to everybody goes outside and dies immediately to worry about what's going to happen. If you're having an effect, you know, if there's a heat effect that is affecting 1% or even less than 1% of that total global population, it produces an unbelievably large, um, you know, uh, devastating um, effect. And I think we, we need to get better about thinking about those things. So we're not just 
tabulating, you know, risk to the individual, but thinking about risk at a, um, at a social collective level as well. Is dealing with this in a significant, like serious way that mitigates the worst and most apocalyptic outcomes, is it consistent with maintaining a, you know, capitalist, you know, the, the sort of capitalist system that we have in America right now? Well, it sort of depends how you define, you know, mitigating it sufficiently and how you define a capitalist system like we have today in America. I mean, um, you know, what is understood to be um, current national policies all around the world, um, that those taken together are expected to produce something like two and a half degrees of warming, which is already considerably better than the levels of warming that we were being warned about. And I was also warning about as recently as a few years ago, um, warming of four or five degrees. Um, so the world is already turning quite aggressively away from fossil fuels. It's just not moving nearly fast enough to get us below the threshold that we've defined as success um, in the past. And that puts us in a kind of conceptually, narratively complicated position because I think the worst case scenarios, I wouldn't quite say that they're impossible, but I think that we should stop thinking of them as like where we're headed if we don't change course. Um, but we've also waited too long and done too little to this point that nothing like a stable calm climate future recognizable to our grandparents um, is possible. And we're in this muddle in the middle and have to figure out how to make sense of that. Now, is it possible to get from two and a half degrees where most of these assessments say we're heading down to 1.8 or maybe even in theory 1.6 or 1.5? Um, I think that kind of movement would require a rather thorough um, remodeling of our global economic system. Um, that's not to say that it would require the end of capitalism or the end of trade. Certainly it would, it would mean the end of um, fossil fuel political power since the main obstacle I would say um, to that undertaking is that in order to do it, we need to stop burning fossil fuels more or less immediately. We have to certainly stop building new infrastructure to burn them. And we're gonna to have to leave a lot of the um, assets that we've already pulled up out of the ground stranded, um, which means that those people who own them are going to have to take a loss of some kind. Um, but I think personally that we can manage to do a lot of that work um, without revolution. Um, that's not to say there aren't other arguments for overturning the system or at least heavily remodeling it or modifying it. But the truth is that renewable energy is now cheaper in parts of the world where 90% of the human population lives than fossil fuel energy. The IEA has called um, solar power the cheapest electricity in history. And those costs are still falling, which means that any government minister or for that, many, for that matter, any corporate actor who's trying to source new energy, um, making decisions in a vacuum before a whiteboard right now would invariably be choosing to go renewable rather than to rely on fossil fuels. There are huge interferences in our political system, as you guys well know, that are preventing those decisions from really being implemented. But logic, like the strong economic logic at every level is that if there was not capture of our political, of our, you know, of political power by fossil fuel interests, um, if we did not have this deep status quo bias that prevented us from making real change, we would all see clearly that a, a, re a renewable future was much better off for us all in the very short term, and we'd be racing towards that future. Um, so in that, in that sense, it's not like the market's problem that we're where we are. In fact, you could say a better market 
would be doing this work faster. Mm. And the problem is that we have a broken political system that isn't allowing those all of that momentum to move us forward as quickly as we can. I'm not a market, you know, I'm not a, a diehard market person. I think there are things that the market can't do here and that the gov- governments need to do. But um, from a, a very basic rudimentary level, like the price of this stuff is falling fast. It's already preferable to invest in it than um, fossil fuels. And so at a very like first order ask is just like, let's get out of the way of that transition um, rather than slowing it up as we've been doing. Yeah, but there's there's also just an issue with the momentum of the current system where we're already so reliant on on dirty energy that it would require a reworking of our entire infrastructure to get to a better place. And like you said before, with the capture uh, that industry has of the government, those are just such strong hurdles. And then there's also this issue where even, uh, you know, many liberals have this like pull yourself up by your bootstraps mentality and they'll be like, you know, they'll scorn people who don't already drive electric cars or whatever, but a hundred companies are responsible for 71% of global emissions. So there is no, there is no bootstrapping your way out of this or individual and personal responsibility in your way out of this. It has to come from the top down in some form and, and the immense power of those industries makes that such a tough hill to climb, you know? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's why we haven't done it um, to this point, and the, the challenge is much tougher as a result. So, I, you know, in 1988, there was a famous um, Senate testimony given by um, Michael Michael Oppenheimer and James Hansen and a couple of other scientists where they, it was like the first time that the, the public really, really heard about the worries of, of climate change. That was in 88. If we had started to decarbonize then, we would have been able to do it at a really marginal rate, and we would have had about 125 or 150 years to do it. We kept growing our emissions instead, both globally and within the US. And so although emissions have been down over the last decade, they were up um, from 88 to about 2005. Um, And now here we are in 2022 and to hit the same target to get all the way to zero and stay below 1.5 degrees, we would have to do it in under 30 years. So we, you know, in my own lifetime, we had the opportunity to take a century and a half to manage this transition. And now we have to do it at a breakneck speed of 25 or 30 years. That's the cost of an action. And it's a function of all of the dynamics that you're describing, which is to say, you know, um, the political power of fossil fuel interests, our um, disinterest in making big changes. And yes, the actual real complexity of rebuilding nearly every aspect of our lives, um, which is almost all of us are have those lives powered by fossil fuels and have fossil fuel growth to thank for the wealth that we experience. Um, and for all those reasons, it's, you know, it's, it's proven really tricky, but I really do think not to like overly focus on this point, but five years ago, even certainly 10 years ago, certainly before that economists would say to you, decarbonizing will be costly. That is no longer the case. Economists will now tell you we will be better off in a green future. The investments will come back to us rapidly and in many multiples. And that is a very, very different landscape to be operating in than one in which we thought we have to do this to save ourselves and save the planet, but it's gonna be costly. Now, I think we should have done it when we, were, when we thought that was the logic. There was a you know, strong argument, humanitarian, moral, et cetera, for it. But we're in a very different place now because 
nobody making an objective analysis of um, the global trajectory of our economies and our energy systems would say that we will be better off by burning more fossil fuels. And as a result, I think this is why we're seeing at least so much more rhetorical commitments from global leaders um, to decarbonize. Now, they're not making good on those commitments. They're basically empty paper pledges at this point. But five or 10 years ago, you did not see presidents and prime ministers all around the world talking about getting to zero emissions. Um, you certainly didn't see corporate CEOs talking about that. Um, you saw them maybe talking about cutting emissions, making promises of reducing their carbon footprint. Now they talk pretty openly about getting all the way to zero. And as I said, I think those promises are um, kind of empty. Um, they're, you know, they're hyperbolic, they're full of hypocrisy, um, but it's still some mark of progress that they know that if they were moving as quickly as their own cost benefit analysis tells them, both at the national political level and at the corporate level, that they would be targeting a pretty rapid transition. And that, um, you know, that transition is not happening enough for my liking, it's not happening enough for the scientists of the world, um, but it is not an unwittable battle we're fighting. We are winning the battle. We're winning the war. We're just not winning it fast enough. You know, another um, refrain I will hear from the right, which, um, or those who are climate skeptics, I guess I should say, which dovetails with what Kyle was saying about the sort of like personal responsibility aspect of this is like, okay, if you're serious about the climate crisis, you should be a vegan. You should have solar panels on your roof. Don't fly. You should be driving an electric vehicle. You should not be flying. Yeah. Like what's your personal carbon footprint? I mean, what is... I, what is the, basically the idea there is that if you haven't implemented all of these things in your own personal life, then you aren't serious and you're a hypocrite and you're just sort of LARPing about this stuff. What is your, what is your response to that? And, you know, how should someone like me who does care about these things feel about the fact that I continue to eat beef? Well, I think in general, get away from me. <laughs> Most important question of the episode: What does this mean for me, David? <laughs> and my, my my hamburger for lunch. Yeah, <laughs> I think in in general, people should um, should live according to their values. So, if they believe that climate change is an important threat and want to um, try to reflect that in their own lives, they should. Um, but the impacts there are relatively small compared to what policy can achieve. I mean, it just isn't the case that 8 billion people are going to go vegan out of the goodness of their hearts. Um, they may make choices to reduce um, their consumption of beef, say, if there are large-scale policy interventions in place to um, supply them with um, better alternatives um, to, or to encourage them in other directions. But I think the, the basic um, challenge that um, you're describing that um, many critics put to climate ad act advocates and activists, um, I think it's a real bait and switch. So, you know, my, my basic line on this is like, what is called hypocrisy here is actually aspiration that we be better together through our politics than we are as individuals. And that is something that we do across causes. It's not just a climate issue. We don't ask people to donate half their money to charity before we consider their desire to raise taxes on the rich. Like we don't tell people- Actually, some people do. <laughs> some people I mean, do do that. But, <laughs> it's silly, but they do it. I mean, yeah, no, but like uh, the um, point taken, yeah, um, yeah. we don't ask people to like, you know, um, 
pay for their kids to go to private school as a way of justifying their choices about public school. I mean, they're, they're, you know, we, we have many, um, we're, we don't, we're not asking people to, for the most part, to um, hire their own private military um, guards or whatever. You know, we, we have a lot of aspects of our society that are organized through politics. And that is because there are a lot of features of our world that are better addressed at the social level than at the individual level. Um, climate is one of those. Um, you know, if everybody chose to buy an electric vehicle, America's emissions trajectory would be better than it is. But many more people would choose to buy an electric vehicle if electric charging stations were much more commonplace, if the tax rebates were, um, you know, um, larger, if, um, you know, if, if the gap between the cost of an electric car and a gas-powered car over the lifetime of that vehicle um, was clearer to people, which it could be made through public policy. Um, these are all, you know, and this is true for every aspect of the climate challenge, you know, there are things that individuals can do, there are choices that we can make, we can choose to take public transportation, etc, cetera, etc, cetera. we can choose to not eat beef. But we live in a world that's designed for us by public policy, and it is not neutral. Um, at the moment, we're living in a world that has been designed um, in part through and for the use of fossil fuels. And if we really are serious about getting a handle on that challenge and redesigning our future and making it more livable and comfortable and prosperous, um, that requires reorienting that social design away from fossil fuels and towards renewable energy. And that means political intervention, not individual action. So uh, final question for me, talk a little bit about um, what the increase in superstorms as a result of climate change and the impact of that, and also touch on perhaps the even scarier prospect, which is wars being fought over water. Well, these are things, both things that we know to worry about um, based on you know, warming trends already. Um, we're seeing more intense storms, not just of hurricanes, um, but, you know, the terror shows that we've been seeing lately over the, the Midwest, um, you know, these these sort of rain bombs and in, um, in, you know, across the country, across the world. Um, the example that I'd like to talk about most, which is most powerful to me is, is about, um, the fact that the city of Houston has been hit by five, 500 year storms in five years. That's a term that obviously doesn't mean as, you know, doesn't mean what it used to, um, but it's useful to remind us like how different a world we're already living in today. So, you know, 500 years ago, there were no European settlements in North America at all. So we're talking about a storm that we would expect to hit once during that entire time, the arriving of Europeans in North America, the forging of colonies, the fighting of a genocide against the native people, the fighting of a, of a revolution, the waging of a slave empire, um, the civil war, industrialization, World War I, the Great Depression, World War II, the Cold War, the age of the American empire, the end of the Cold War, September 11th, the financial crisis, COVID-19. Like we're talking about one storm in all that time. And Houston's been hit by five of them in five years. So they're literally dealing with millennia of extreme weather compressed into half a decade. I think it's also important to keep in mind, like Houston's still standing. That weather is unprecedented. It's going to require an unprecedented response. They're now talking about building this thing called the Ike Dike, which is basically a seawall around the city. 
these kinds of interventions are going to be incredibly expensive and disruptive. They're probably going to not protect some communities. And while they do protect other communities, there are huge problems with them ecologically as well. But it does not mean that 30 years from now, 40 years from now, all of these cities will be have to have to be abandoned. It just means that we will be dealing with a much, much higher level of disruption in our daily lives than we're comfortable dealing with today. And that extreme weather of that kind will become much, much, much more common. So I talked a few times um, over the course of this interview about the incredible heat wave in South Asia that's been going on. Literally, it's been going on for three straight months, wow. affecting more than a billion people. And this would have seemed like an unthinkable event as recently as five or 10 years ago. But a scientist who's really at the forefront of studying these um, frequencies, her name is uh, Freddie Otto. I spoke to a few weeks ago about it. And she was saying this is probably like a, I don't know, a once a decade event or something like that now. Um, the same is true of the Pacific heat dome. That would have been before industrialization, she told me, a one in eight million year event, which means you'd have to run the entire history of humanity over 30 plus times to encounter it once. Oh my God. And we, of course, we saw it last year. Wow. Um, so, you know, we're, we're moving into this world in which we're, our daily lives are going to be defined by weather events that we used to consider extreme and are going to be forced to consider normal and adapt to as though they are normal. And wildfires are another really powerful example of that. Um, what that means for, you know, social stability and warfare is, I think, kind of intuitive. Um, when countries are prosperous and have high levels of social trust, um, they can accommodate much more serious disturbances and disruptions than countries that are poor with um, badly managed bureaucracies and public services and with low levels of social and public trust. And what climate change will do um, is put pressures on all of us everywhere in the world. But those pressures are going to be most acute in the places that have the least resources to deal with them. And the end result is likely to be considerably more conflict. And those who study that are, you know, quick to point out it's not just state state conflict. Um, there's actually a relationship also with temperature and interpersonal violence. So when things are hotter, you see more rapes and murders and domestic assaults, um, burglaries. And it's also the case that more people are admitted to uh, mental hospitals um, on those days. So, you know, you're seeing just a massive, massive disruption to what we have taken um, as the um, settled fundamental basis of modern life. And the whole, the whole board game there is just being shaken by climate change. Um, you know, in terms of water in particular, um, I don't know exactly how to project that future, but the projections for Sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia and their water issues are really dire. Um, I mean, we are already living in a world where, I don't know the number off the top of my head, I think it's something like 800 million to 1.2 billion, somewhere in there, um, are not, do not have access to clean drinking water. Um, but there have been parts of India already where they've had to, the, the literally like the, the taps ran dry in cities, at least for a period of a few days um, because of ongoing drought. And we're seeing much worse drought um, than that, even in the Horn of Africa, where in, in Kenya, I think they've had four straight rainy seasons basically fail. And so the entire agricultural um, you know, system of that region um, has failed as a result. It's one reason why I just wrote a big piece this week. One reason why we're seeing this incredible um, rise in, in global hunger. We've heard a fair amount about the impact of the war in Ukraine on that because you know, Russia and Ukraine supply 
um, something like 12% of globally traded calories, it said. But the truth is that um, when the current head of the World Food Program came in in 2017, he estimated, and this is a Republican, former Republican governor of South Carolina, David Beasley, who I spoke to, um, he estimated when he came in in 2017, there were 80 million people in the world um, who were suffering from acute food insecurity. And um, the number had climbed to 275 million before the Ukraine war. And now it's 325 million. He actually expects it's going to grow in the coming months, which means wow. um, even, if 50, even if the effect of the Ukraine war is to um, push 50 million people into acute food insecurity, um, the effect of the last five years, in part having to do with climate and other impacts, conflict too, um, we've quadrupled the number of people who are in acute food insecurity. And for the same piece, I spoke to a woman named Sarah Menker, who's an Ethiopian-born entrepreneur, runs a company called Grow Intelligence, which does a lot of incredibly sophisticated monitor satellite monitoring of, um, of agriculture, especially in the developing world, but really everywhere. She gave a big presentation before the UN Security Council about the worsening hunger crisis. And she said that um, two things, just in the six months since uh, December, which is mostly the effect of the war, um, 10 million people have been pushed to the edge of famine just in the last six months, and 400 million people have been pushed into the category of food insecure. Wow. And what's really astonishing about that is that it is more than the number of people that were pulled out of that category through China's incredible poverty reduction um, efforts over the last two decades. So we hear a lot about how the world is much less poor than it used to be. There's much less extreme poverty. That's largely because of the development of China and the growth of the Chinese middle class. And we've undone those gains, those gains of 20 years, we've undone in just five or six months because of the incredible um, food price crisis that we're living through now. Um, and most people who study this will tell you, you know, we're not living in a Malthusian world. We have enough calories to feed the world. The agricultural yields are on the whole globally growing. We shouldn't worry in, in, a, in, a, in a global sense about having enough food, but our systems are so fragile that when there's disruptions here and there, it means that we have to redesign um, our entire food distribution network basically every year because of climate impacts. And that is an incredibly costly undertaking, which is basically too expensive for the world's poor to afford. And we know that in the next few decades, those climate impacts are going to grow more intense, which means the disruptions are going to become more regular and um, the food price spikes are going to become um, a much more common feature of our global um, food system, which is going to ultimately, unless we take really dramatic action, um, produce much, much more hunger. So we've gotten used to the idea, or some of us have, that Globally, hunger is declining, poverty is declining, um, but we can't just say that's it, that's enough. We know that because of the disruptions of climate change, the challenges are going to grow much bigger, and it's going to make the, um, you know, the goal of feeding all the world's people um, even harder, even though we have more food to do it with. Wow. That is um, truly extraordinary and disturbing to contemplate. And I think it's really important for people to take in what you said there, that while, yes, the war in Ukraine has caused these spikes in prices, have pushed millions into uh, uh, poverty and food insecurity, that this is actually part of a broader trend and part of a very disturbing new normal. Um, David, where can people read that piece, which I definitely want to check out? Also, how can they subscribe to your newsletter? Yeah, I'm, I'm right for the New York Times. Um, I write a piece every week that also appears as a newsletter in the opinion section. And um, I'm also writing columns and features for the New York Times Magazine. And um, you can find me there. And you can also find me on Twitter where I um, 
share a lot of really scary news stories. (laughs) (laughs) Well, one thing I want to say, which I think is really important that you have uh, maybe more than anyone else proven, which is that there used to be this assumption in media, at least in cable news media, where I came from, that like climate doesn't rate. Sure, it's a big problem, but we can't get people to care about it. It's just vegetables. And yet your cover story was what the most read piece ever laying out the potential dire impacts in uh, New York magazine history. Is that correct? Do I have those stats right? So you sort of single-handedly disproved that there was a lot of public interest and concern in this issue. And I think the media has actually really responded since then. We're see, we see a lot more climate coverage all around the world um, and in the U.S. media um, too. It's, you know, it's not quite as good on broadcast news as it is in print media, but I think the yeah, trends are right. actually relatively encouraging there. Um, where, you know, the world, and as a result, the world is um, more engaged, more informed, and I think, um, more worried. The problem is our politics hasn't been moving fast enough. That's true. And print media, I think, generally does a good job. Uh, mainstream TV media is the bane of our existence. So. <laughs> <laughs> we won't ask you to co-sign that. We'll leave that as our own editorial. Yeah, we'll leave it there. David, thank you for taking so much time with us and helping us understand this incredibly important issue. And we really highly encourage our audience to check out your newsletter and your book and all the things that you are up to. So thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Great to talk to you guys. Yeah, our pleasure. All right, that was David Wallace Wells. Um, like I was saying to you off air, he's good. He's really good as a, um, usually in my experience, maybe this is unfair, but people who are very well-versed in the science tend to talk over people's heads a little mm-hmm. bit, you know? I think um, it's because my understanding is that, you know, he didn't originally come from like, science climate crisis background. He's sort of pulled into it and he's focused more on journalism, storytelling. So he's able to walk you through it in a way that lands um, and makes sense, even if you aren't super, super versed in like the nitty gritty of the science. And I think he lays out, you know, some things that are kind of hopeful. One trend that I've been following is green parties uh, in Europe in particular, but also just now in Australia, have been rising in political power. There clearly is more sort of public impetus to take action. The technology has developed really rapidly in a way that, you know, he says effectively, like, actually, if we weren't totally sort of captured by a fossil fuel industry and, um, you know, also subsidizing them, then actually the economics of it makes sense to transition rapidly. And yet, on the other hand, when you consider, I mean, the Biden agenda completely stymied, not that what he was proposing, I mean, what he was proposing was already the like least action of any of the presidential contenders. That's off the table, completely stymied. Very likely uh, Republicans take control of the midterm. So then the agenda is officially dead. Also very possible that uh, Biden himself loses or doesn't run again next time around. So you're looking at a political landscape, at least here in the U.S., and we are one of the most, you know, significant contributing factors here that is pretty dire in terms of action. Well, I could understand why in Australia in particular, you may have had the rise of the Green Party there because they were dealing with horrendous wildfires that were just, I remember when that was all over the news. Mm -hmm. Oh, it was so bad. So, you know, this has always been the issue with uh, climate in general is that it's not, it's, we're a frog in the boiling water where by the time you realize, like, oh, wait, I'm a frog in boiling water. It's like, but too late. You know, you can't, you have to see the direct like one-to-one bad thing happens, need to do something to fix it. But it's not, it's like a slow unfolding of the thing. And then yeah. by the time you want to act, it's a little bit too late. Although, and you know, to be honest with you though, the more I think about it, 
I don't think that the people are actually the problem here because the people are never the fucking problem. Yeah, look right. at the, again. Because even if you look at like the mansion example in West Virginia, you ask West Virginians, they want to move in the direction of green energy as well. Now, I mean, they want to make sure that their people are taken care of and they don't aren't left without a livelihood. And I don't blame them for that whatsoever. But it's not even like a mansion is in step with the um, the actual people he represents. Of course, he doesn't really represent them. He represents the people who are funding his campaign. That's the real issue. It's not a lack of public understanding of the problem or public desire to do something about it. It is a corrupted, bought political. But that's why. But that's why I'm a pessimist on this issue. That's why I'm a deep pessimist on this issue because just like every other issue, like okay, we just had the story not that long ago. Uh, the House of Representatives passed some gun reform bill. It had, you know, seven, I think, different provisions. They're all relatively intelligent, high-capacity magazine ban, raised the age to own an assault weapon to 21 instead of 18. It had a number of things in there. Okay, great, wonderful. Every article on it accurately points out DOA in the Senate. Yep. So, okay, just add this to the list of things where people are like, yeah, we should do something about that. Let's go do something about that. And the entire system grinds to a halt because the system is just totally corrupted. And the particularly when it comes to fossil fuels, the infrastructure is, it's so deeply rooted in the system that yeah. like in order to change, I mean, it's a real test of like, do you have the ability to really do a top-down change where it's a total rewrite? And I mean, forget a, a top-down total change, complete rewrite. We can't even do like minor rewrites of little tweaks in, uh, I know. in the edges. Like, it's very depressing. Right, exactly. Of things that are, have like a 90% approval rating. Exactly. And where the public has been completely shocked and horrified, um, you know, just in the past couple of weeks by multiple mass shootings that, you know, just, yeah, it's, it's appalling. It is absolutely appalling. And then you have a Democratic Party that isn't really interested in governing. Um, you know, they... They are happy to talk in existential terms about the uh, threat of the climate crisis or, you know, or other issues, too, about abortion or about guns or about these other um, these other problems facing the country. But when it comes to actually using the powers that they have and governing and moving the country in a different direction and making the changes they have promised that people want. They're total. The only thing they know how to do is make excuses. They're okay. They're total institutionalists, even when they are not corrupted in on the few issues where they're not corrupted, like uh, on the issue of guns, the overwhelming majority of Democrats don't take any money from the gun lobby. Yeah. Uh, a, a lot of them, some of them do take money from from fossil fuels, like Joe Manchin's great example. A lot of them don't take money from fossil fuels, but even on the issues where they're not corrupted, they're complete and utter institutionalists where it's like, well, if I don't dot every I and cross every T and go, go through the proper process, then, uh, I guess nothing's going to get done. They're so afraid of their own shadows, too. They're so scared of, like, a Republican talking point against them. And I also it, just don't think they care that much. I don't think they care. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Yeah. So, anyway, I hate to end on such a doomer note. It's but hard not to on, well, this, well, on this topic. Because others. every single article I've ever read on climate change throughout the course of my 10 years of doing this is, like, scientists determined that— uh, the new situation is worse than the previously thought worst case scenario. It's every single article that comes out, every single report that comes out is like hair on fire, got to do something. And then, you know, you look at the political landscape and it's like, now to your point, there are some other places that are taking it a little more seriously and trying to make the transition. But it's like status quo defense is built into our political system. Mm -hmm. It's just built into it. And so it's just such a hard thing to overcome.
but I think he's very well-spoken dude, very smart, uh, educated us on a lot of stuff. So everybody definitely go check out his newsletter if you want to be up to date and informed on all this stuff. Yes, absolutely. And um, thank you guys so much for watching. If you want to get the video a day early, make sure that you subscribe on Substack. But you can also subscribe on Substack without paying the money and you get our newsletters and you get the audio version as soon as it comes out. As you guys know, we make the complete audio version free and available for everyone. But if you are, are able to support us, we really, really appreciate it. That's right. So thank you guys. We love you. We'll talk to you soon. 